join me as we continue in our series through the Gospel of Luke. This morning we find ourselves in Luke chapter 23, verses 26 through 43. The title of our sermon this morning is Golgotha, and our key words for our worshipers in training are cross, criminal, and mourning. Now, in our text this morning, we come to the pinnacle event that all of human history is centered on. All of the history past led up to it, and all history since then has been defined by it, and we rest in the shadow of it. It's the most significant event. Millions of men and women have placed their hope in it. Hundreds of thousands have died for it. And to this very day, it's proclaimed far and wide, and it's the very reason why we gather each and every week together. People have sought to understand this in ways other than what the Bible communicates. Some have sought to explain it away, but all of history, it cannot be denied, comes to rest on this as the central moment. And it's unlike any moment that has ever happened or ever will happen. If you recall the verses preceding our text this morning, have detailed for us how Jesus was cruelly mistreated from the Sanhedrin to Gabbatha with Pilate to Herod and back to Pilate, soldiers placing a crown of thorns upon his head, pounding it into his skull with a reed, spitting upon him, mocking him, and pulling him around from place to place. Remember, they, they pulled his robe off of him and they, they put upon him these kingly garments to mock him. And now we see this morning that he'll be placed back into his bloody clothing as Jesus makes his final steps of his journey to the cross on the journey that's been called the Via Dolorosa. It's Latin for the way of grief or the way of sorrow or suffering. It's a street in Jerusalem that's been named. It's the street that they've assumed Jesus walked upon as he made his way to the cross. So we see Jesus being led out of Jerusalem. This is the city in which God dwells in the midst of his people. He's led out of that city, the everlasting Son of God, the only one worthy of the temple, is led out as an outcast. Before we get to the text, we need to be clear that none of this is any kind of surprise. It was no surprise to Jesus. It certainly shouldn't have been a surprise to those who followed and, and listened to him closely. And we read in the Bible all the way from Genesis throughout, it's the most significant event in history that has been told about. It has been waited for. You recall all the way back in Genesis 3.15, it was promised when, when God, in cursing the serpent, said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And this right here this morning is the bruising of the heel of the seed of woman. 
And we see it in all of the blood, all of the blood of the Old Testament, the bulls and the goats and the rams and the sacrifices that are made day by day and year by year are all pointing forward to the blood of the one true lamb who is Christ. We have wonderful prophetic words like those of Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has bore our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed." And then as we've looked through the gospel of Luke, we've seen many times that this moment was spoken of. Remember when Jesus as an infant is presented in the temple, Mary and Joseph encounter encounter the righteous man named Simeon in chapter 2 in verses 34 and 35 said, And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. If you remember in chapter 9, after Peter made his confession that Jesus is the Christ, Jesus said the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And then only a few verses later in chapter 9, after he ascends the Mount of Transfiguration, he comes back down to the people again. He casts out a demon and he tells his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. And then in verse 51 of chapter 9, it says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And ever since then, we've seen Jesus moving to this moment in chapter 13 and verse 33. Remember, Jesus rebukes the Pharisees. He exposes them and their ancestors for killing the prophets. And he said, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. And then in chapter 18, Luke writes, and taking the twelve, he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, he will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon, and after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day, he will rise. This is no surprise to Jesus. Remember, even the final Passover only Just hours prior to this moment, he sits with his disciples in their final supper together. And he breaks and passes bread and passes wine and says, This is my body, which has been broken for you. This is my blood, which has been shed for you. That Jesus himself is the great sacrifice, the great Passover. So you see, this is only a very small sampling of all that the law and the prophets and Jesus have said about this very moment. It's the most spoken of event in all of the Bible and, dare we say, all of human history. 
It was long awaited, even though it was highly misunderstood. And here it was, the grandest moment of time. And it came through much suffering. It had to come through much suffering. Jesus, the Son of God, falsely tried for blasphemy and insurrection, for calling himself what he was. And in so doing, he became an outcast so that we as sinners who have been justly cast out of the paradise of God, might be brought back into his presence. Jesus was thrown out of Jerusalem so that outcasts like us could be made citizens of the new Jerusalem, the eternal land of glory. Jesus was made a curse to redeem sinners from the curse of the law. The living word of God was made the curse of God. From a human perspective, Jesus was unjustly condemned, but from God's perspective, he was justly condemned because he was paying the price of the sins of the guilty. The writer of Hebrews wrote, Wherefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people in his own blood, suffered outside the gate. And so this morning, we find Jesus outside the gate the cursed outcast who went to Calvary, carrying on his shoulders the crossbeam that was intended for Barabbas. The only begotten Son of God took the place of Barabbas, whose very name means Son of the Father, so that the children of Adam might become the adopted sons and daughters of God. So let's read beginning in verse 26. And they As they led him away, they seized one, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. Now, in Jesus' physical condition, as he makes his way down the Via Dolorosa, there's no way he would be able to make it to Golgotha. So the soldiers grab a man out of the crowd to help him. It was Simon of Cyrene. Simon was an African from one of the most prominent port cities in the coast of North Africa. The Jewish faith had long been established in Cyrene. So no doubt, Simon was in Jerusalem having made a very long and very expensive journey to be with God's people in the temple during the Passover, when the Passover lamb would be slain. But God had other plans. God would leave would lead Simon to a different sanctuary, to a different temple. God would lead Simon to Golgotha, where the true Passover lamb was to be slain. God himself would bring this Cyrenian Jew to encounter his only begotten son, the Lord Jesus Christ, an encounter that would change Simon's life forever. His identity from that day forward was linked With Jesus Christ, he would be known as this coerced cross-bearer who was conquered by God's grace, who eventually would be made a willing cross-bearer for Jesus. But certainly at first, Simon was a Jew. He knew what the cross was. He knew it was a shameful curse. Cursed is the man who hangs upon a tree. And those who saw Simon would never forget that he had taken up the cross of this condemned Nazarene. 
to have come all of this way from Cyrene to worship in the temple of the fathers, to participate in the great feast, to walk in the streets of Jerusalem, to meet with other Jews on the highest day of the year, and then to have his plans interrupted suddenly for such a bitter, degrading experience to carry the beam of the cross. And what a contrast we have here. Luke says that Simon was seized to carry the crossbeam of Jesus. He was coerced. He was made to do it by those in authority. But he's carrying the cross of Jesus who was willing to bear the accursed cross for Simon. Jesus willingly bore the wretched cross, even though his body had nearly given way under it. Jesus had endured the betrayal of Judas, the dark hours of doubt at Gethsemane, the desertion of his disciples, the mock trial before the Sanhedrin, the abuse in the palace of Caiaphas, Peter's denial, and scourging, and a sentence of death. He endures all of it. He's lost massive amounts of blood at this point. He had nothing to eat and nothing to drink since the previous evening. And now this heavy weight of this cross is laid upon his shoulders, physically speaking. It's a wonder that he could even walk. And the soldiers recognize it's too heavy. And yet, and yet, where were his friends now? Which of them would step forward to carry the cross with Jesus? They're nowhere to be found, not even Simon Peter, who said he would go to jail and he would die before he forsake Jesus. He was missing too. All had forsaken him. None could handle the cross but Jesus. And so Simon of Cyrene was coerced into doing it. No man would willingly do this. And yet in doing so, notice where Simon is. He's walking in the footsteps of Jesus, one by one behind him. Good verse 27. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green... What will happen when it's dry? Now, Luke tends to place a very heavy emphasis throughout his gospel on faithful women who have surrounded Jesus throughout his ministry. Even on this dark day, it is no exception. Along the Via Della Rosa, Jesus is accompanied by a group of women who will not leave him, even in his hour of greatest humiliation. This great crowd is following him. No doubt some of them were the very people who were crying, Hosanna! And a week later saying, crucify him! And now they follow along to see what will happen next. But Luke highlights that among them were faithful women who were following and mourning and lamenting all that has taken place. But Jesus tells them not to weep for him but to weep for themselves. It seems odd, doesn't it? 
It seems perfectly reasonable that they'd be weeping. An innocent man, the anointed savior of the world, seen as who he was by these women, sent by the Father, about to be murdered slowly and publicly. This is the greatest injustice in all of history, the most heinous sin to ever be committed. The proper emotion is sorrow and grief and lamenting and mourning and weeping. In fact, Zechariah prophesied that this would happen In Zechariah 12.10, it says, When they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one who weeps over a firstborn. But Jesus looks at all of this and he responds and says, Do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. What a surprise that would have been to them all. This man who's been condemned as a wretched prisoner on the verge of the most torturous of deaths. And yet he turns and he's thinking of them. You see, Jesus' words were words of grace, amazing grace. How so? Jesus is following an Old Testament pattern, and that is addressing women as representatives of a nation. So his surprising message was, to the devout in Israel as a whole. He says, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves. And and Jesus is driving home this gracious warning with a terrifying prophecy and a terrifying proverb. In the days ahead, women would call those who had barren wombs blessed. Now, in that culture, that was not a blessing. That was, to them, a curse. But in the coming days, things would be so awful in Jerusalem that it would be preferable. It's better to endure all that will come without children. In verse 30, Jesus is quoting from the prophet Hosea. um, Hosea chapter 10 and verse 8. It's, It's very important to understand that so we can understand why he's saying what he does. You see, the prophet was proclaiming a word from the Lord in which he's speaking to the people of Israel about a coming day when they will be destroyed. The coming judgment would be so unbearable that Israel would cry out with this language used by the ancient, unfaithful Israel pleading for an earthquake to cause the mountains to fall on them and put them out of their misery. And then in verse 31, Jesus gives a short proverb. He says, For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Obviously, we know trees do not naturally burn so well when they are green, but they are highly flammable when they are dry. And Jesus is speaking of himself here. Jesus, the righteous one, the green tree, was not a natural object of disaster but the sinful, dry nation was. And he's saying, if all of this is coming now, imagine what is yet to come in judgment. There's a so much more aspect to this proverb, and it is horrific. So what's the underlying message of this prophecy in this proverb? The very fact that Jesus warns these devout women, and thus devout Israel, indicates that not all who would experience the coming devastation, in a sense, deserved it. In in other words, not all of Israel was hostile to Jesus. And so he leaves open the possibility that God, who is in the process 
of redeeming Simon's heart could also redeem the hearts of those who were lamenting all that was going on in Jesus. And this occurred throughout the New Testament church. It's wonderfully true that many Christians were spared the Holocaust of AD 70 and the destruction of Jerusalem. But it wasn't so for all. There were many tragic deaths in Jerusalem when it was destroyed. Many of God's people were destroyed and persecuted. But Jesus' surprise prophecy to the daughters of Israel was an act of grace. It should encourage every hearer down through the centuries to this very day, this side of the final judgment, to turn to Jesus for grace and for mercy. Edwin Cox wrote a short poem about this. It says, Weep, O my daughters, but grieve not for me. Weep for yourselves and your children. Shed bitter tears of mourning and pray, O pray, miserere nostri domine, which is translated, Have mercy on us, O Lord. That's the prayer. You see, God does not play around with justice. You and I will face a perfectly and justly wrathful God on the last day. And if you're not in Christ, Jesus' words apply directly to you. What shall you do? Jesus says that you should weep for yourself and for the fate of your children. You ought to consider very carefully what will happen with you on the day of judgment. Think of it. Think of what will happen and weep. Not tears of pity, but tears of repentance. This is the only way of preparation for the last day. You must see the severity of your sin. You must see how you've offended God. See that you deserve his eternal punishment and then repent and turn from your sins. Jesus endured all of this. He did all that he did so that we need not do the same. He became sin on behalf of sinners that we might be free from the wrath of God. I commend Jesus to you if you are not walking with him, the gracious and merciful God who was kind enough to offer you not only a warning of the wrath to come, but of the way of escape through his blood. Brothers and sisters, do we take sin seriously? Do we think that it is a small thing when we rebel against our Creator, the very God who has made us and whom we have righteousness found in His perfect obedience? We excuse our faults and failures so often, our tempers, our bad habits, our disrespect, our pride, our immorality, but God does not. And if we don't care about our sin, it just goes to show how deeply ingrained our rebellion is, how deserved the judgment is. It goes to show, if we have no concern about our sin, that we may very possibly not be walking with Christ at all. And the right response, the only sensible response, is to weep. Because sin is spiritual insanity, and only God can restore us to a right heart and mind. The only response is to cry out to him that he would do that very thing. And for those who are walking in Christ, that we would have a deep sense of the reality of the heinousness of our sins. And we would recognize that all that Christ endured was absolutely necessary because of what sin 
is. Look with me at verse 32. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And they came to the place that is called the skull. There they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. Jesus and following right behind him, Simon, and then the crowd all followed along and arrived at Golgotha the place called the skull. And finally, Simon is able to drop the crossbeam he bore for Jesus. Surely he walked away, but he turned around to watch. You know, Luke spares us all of the details, and he simply says in verse 33, there they crucified him. But if you quiet your mind and simply think of this very moment, you can hear the metal hammer clanging against the spikes and the sound of them being driven through each hand and one through his feet. Imagine the torment and the pain and the agony. I imagine the other two Criminals being crucified with Jesus, letting out horrific, blood-curdling screams as they're pierced and hung on the cross. And then they're risen upright, all of their weight hanging for all to see, to be communicated to all who would see that these are enemies of ours. These are the criminals in our midst. This is what crime in our city will buy you. And all their shame and for... For, t- for two of the three, in all of their guilt, they hang there as a spectacle as the people anxiously await each of them to die. Now, most of the time, a person who's crucified dies from asphyxiation because they're hanging on the cross. They're unable to support their weight enough to, to draw a breath of air, and they eventually die from the inability to breathe in the midst of all of the trauma and blood loss in their body. But it's here in Luke that we see three of Jesus' words from the cross. In all, the Gospels record seven words from the cross. There are three in Luke, three in John, and one in Matthew and Mark. Now, Luke's, Luke records all of the words from the cross that are directed heavenward. They point to heaven, while John's are all dealing with the people surrounding Jesus. And Matthew and Mark record those famous words, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So in Luke, here's the first of these words. Jesus prays, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now notice here that they continue. Even in this most horrific hour, they continue to mock him. They cast lots and take his clothing. 
They scoff at him. The, the Jewish rulers are making fun of him and all of his great works, calling on him to save himself, to take himself off the cross. If you're the chosen one, if you're the Son of God, if you're the Christ, save yourself. And then the Roman soldiers, it was too much for them. They couldn't help but joining in. They offer him sour wine. If you're the king of the Jews, then save yourself. You can just imagine them standing around the cross, looking at him and laughing and egging one another on and trying to outdo each other with insults, nudging the other. It's your turn. See if you can outdo that one. Bending over with laughter as Jesus suffers. And yet he looks upon them in the midst of it all and he prays, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And these words almost defy further comment, don't they? As Jesus is hanging on a cross in deep agony, his life is drifting away in torment and his concern is for his tormentors. He cares about the fact that they're heaping condemnation and damnation upon themselves. And so he prays that God would forgive them, adding that they are a clueless people. Now, there's always some discussion about who Jesus is is praying for here, but I see no reason not to understand that is all the people who are present even those Jewish leaders who have deliberately brought him to this place. And most astonishingly, in a sense, they know exactly what they're doing. And yet, in a very real way, they have no idea what kind of terrible crime they're committing. They think they're doing God a favor by killing Jesus. And yet, they're heaping condemnation upon themselves. But do you see the mercy and compassion of our Savior? Even as he hangs upon the cross, he's concerned about the souls around him. I don't know about you, but that's problematic for me. I just feel myself every time I think about this. Surely, of all of the people of the world, these are the ones that cannot be forgiven by God. Then I remember, they are me. I am them, killing our innocent Savior, adding to his suffering by taunts and abuse. It makes no sense that God would wipe the slate clean and justice demands that he doesn't, but that is the wonder of the cross. We sing, on that cross where Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. Because you see, the physical agony of the cross, it was horrific. There is nothing that we can compare to what Jesus endured physically, but it was nothing compared to the cup of God's wrath that Jesus endured spiritually. He took the justice for our sins, the wrath that we deserved. Jesus paid the price for all of those selfish, greedy, envious, angry, cowardly, lazy, foolish, stood around. All who put their trust in him eventually. And he did this for them, but for you and I. For selfish, greedy, envious, angry, cowardly, lazy, foolish people. It's just almost a truth too significant to fathom. 
while we were yet enemies. You and I hated God, and yet in our place, condemned he stood. He made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We have no righteousness of our own, and yet God has destroyed his son that we might receive the forgiveness of sin, that we might receive the righteousness of Christ given on our behalf. That's the power of the cross. There's a wonderful 19th century hymn. I want us to learn it. It's called Alleluia, What a Savior. Here's some of the words. It's the first thing I thought of when I considered this passage. It says, Man of sorrows, What a name for the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless Lamb of God was he, Full atonement, can it be? Alleluia, what a Savior. And you know, I'd be remiss not to mention the irony of this sign above Jesus' head on the cross. This is the King of the Jews, it said. John tells us the sign was Pilate's idea. Usually the sign above their heads was to tell of the crimes that the people had committed. And so as people came and observed, they could see why they were hanging on a cross. But Pilate, remember, found Jesus innocent. So there was nothing to put on the sign. So Pilate decided to take a little shot at the Jewish leaders. He knew it would drive them crazy, even in the hour of his death, to call Jesus the king of the Jews. But the irony, of course is that as all the people stood and mocked him, calling on him to bring himself down, he hung there knowing, yes, I am the king of the Jews. And not only the king of the Jews, I am the king of all creation. And it is through this cross that I obtain my throne. The Dutch theologian Abraham Kuyper said of Jesus, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. And so it's not through saving himself that Jesus shows he is king. He's not simply being murdered. Rather, he's choosing to lay down his life and to drink the cup because of the kind of king he is, a servant king who takes on the punishment that is due to his people. He's dying that we might live, and so we must say again, hallelujah, what a savior. Look at verse 39, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. 
And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Lastly, today we see the other criminals who were crucified with Jesus. There are three men, Jesus in the middle and a man on his left and a man on his right. The first criminal we hear about is a blasphemer, even unto his very last breath. He's a condemned criminal who, unlike Jesus, rightly deserved his punishment. And yet he is busy blaming others and blaspheming God. Have you ever known someone who blasphemes God up to their very last breath? It's heartbreaking. And while his words are vile, they are no more wretched than the sinner who day by day blasphemes God and says, Jesus will forgive me because I'm a good person. I will do what I want, how I want, whenever I want, and he will deal with it. Yes, he will deal with it, but not in the way you desire. And those words are the very same kinds of words as this man who hangs with Jesus. Save yourself and us. Do something. He wants to blame Jesus. My friend, if you give no regard to Jesus' commandments, you do not love him. And while you may call on him, you will be condemned. The man hung there justly and rightly, and yet he blamed Jesus. How wretched and vile. But look at the second criminal. Very quickly, I don't have much comment about these, but I have six things I want to point out about this man. The first is this, that this man recognizes his sinfulness. He identifies that his sentence of condemnation is a just sentence. And he's receiving the due reward for his deeds. He knows that he is a sinner. Secondly, we see that this man feared God. It's clear in his response to the other criminal. Do you not fear God? In other words, I do. He has a right understanding of who God is. And it rightly strikes him with fear. Thirdly, this man saw Christ for who he was. He knew Jesus was innocent. He knew that Jesus could save him. He knew that Jesus was the king. And he knew that his kingdom wasn't of this world when he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Fourthly, this man's fear of God and admitting of sin was repentance. He repents of his sin. He entrusts himself to Christ. Fifthly, in asking Jesus to remember him, this man is seeking forgiveness. Only Jesus could forgive because of what he's doing in this very moment. And the criminal to his side knew it was only when he turned to Jesus, seeking to be set free, that he had any hope at all. And the glorious news is that Jesus is quick to respond. He wasted no time to say, truly I say to you, you will be with me in paradise. You know, this puts to death that faulty idea, that foolish idea of something called purgatory. If ever there was a man who could say, 
he should endure the flames of purgatory, it would have been this man. And yet Jesus tells him, today, today you will be with me in paradise. He has escaped the flames of hell to receive the glorious paradise of heaven. It's our great hope, brothers and sisters, that as soon as we die, we die and we'll be with Jesus in paradise. Sixth and lastly with this man, having wasted his life as a criminal and only having truly but a moment to live, the man did the only thing he could do as a new believer in Jesus Christ in obedience. As a man who in a moment became one who wanted to honor and glorify Jesus, what does he do? He witnesses to the other criminal. He stands for Jesus. He rebukes the man. He calls him to fear God and to repent of his sin. He may not have had much time, but you know the man on the day of his death did something that has been preserved in the word of God forever. It's a small act of obedience, and yet it will forever impact the people of God. Have you no fear of God? All that comes to you, you deserve, but this man is innocent. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. In an instant, this criminal was changed to a man who loved the Lord Jesus and was welcomed into eternal paradise. And so on this hill, we see three men. One man had sin in him and all of the guilt of his sin upon him. The second man had sin in him, but because of the righteousness of Christ, no guilt of sin upon him. And the third man had no sin in him whatsoever, and yet he had the sin of the world upon him. He bore the wrath reserved for us, for you, for me, and for all of his people. There may be sin in us, and there is, but praise be to God that as his people, when we stand before him as judge and jury, there will be no sin upon us because Christ has bore our guilt. And so together we can all say, Alleluia, what a Savior. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, your word is so rich and powerful. And what your word has revealed to us is that while we are sinners and while we have been enemies of yours, that in Christ you have transformed us and made us to be new creations. That while sin continues to dwell in us, that the penalty of sin no longer rests upon us. And it is because of all that Christ endured, physically and spiritually, receiving upon himself the full wrath that you have stored up, belonging to us, was poured out on him. And so we may be great sinners, and yet our Savior is far greater.
are so kind, O oh God, to give us your only Son that we might live free from the bondage and power of sin, reconciled to you through the blood shed on the cross. And we proclaim, Alleluia. What a Savior. Amen.